Do you love NASCAR and all things racing? Then you've come to the right place. I'm Derek Cope. And I'm Alicia Cope. We are your hosts. And here on Race Theory, we talk about all things asphalt racing. Our life on the road, maintaining good sponsor relationships, as well as balancing our work and family life as a team. Stick around. And hopefully our tips and experiences will help you reach your own goals. Welcome back to Race Theory. This is 2020. We just finished up with COVID and looking forward to getting to back to some normalcy. And we had a lot of exciting things on the horizon in 2021. We just got off the year where the young driver, his rookie year, uh, I thought he did a really good job, was, was gaining, uh, you know, and progressing nicely. And then we had the opportunities for something really special from my standpoint. Uh, we, you look at what I would wanted to do in the beginning with this team was to drive the race car. And as it worked out, uh, more of a business situation and decision, I guess, more than anything, where when we put, you know, people in the car that could bring money because so much startup had been expended. You know, we were hemorrhaging money early, trying to build a team from scratch and, you know, leasing a charter and buying engines and cars and transporters and, you know, brick and mortar. And then, and then buying the charter and then buying the charter. So there was a lot of, you know, costs relevant to that. And I didn't get a chance to drive the race car as much as I really had hoped to and had envisioned. And it was disappointing, yet they're our friends and I wanted the best for them and the business model just, it just wasn't conducive to that. So we made concessions and, you know, I pretty much was out of the car, but in 2000, the winter of 2020 and leading to 2021, the opportunity come from the owners to let me run Daytona and my last Daytona 500. And it was something I think Alicia and the owners had put together. And, you know, I, when they talked about it, I, you know, I was excited, but yet, you know, I just, you know, one off deal, you know, you hadn't been in the car and, you know, you're looking for, but, you know, to run a Daytona again in my last race there, and it meant so much just to be there. I was really looking forward to it and pretty much said, you know, let's just build, you know, put together a, a new car, get it ready to go be really ready to go. We, I mean, we had a chassis, a new chassis that we had purchased that really didn't have any time on it. And we put a body on it. We got it ready to go. And then we, you know, we had, the thing that was exciting was that we were so prepared. The culture had changed the crew chief, George church, you know, everybody at the shop, we were hitting on all cylinders and the winter was going off flawlessly. We were ahead of the game. We were nitpicking. We were fine tuning. We were, you know, doing all the things that you would do to speedway cars in preparation to go down there with two quality cars. And the optimism was high. And we had a sponsor as well. Yeah. So, I mean, we had, we had all the things that we wanted and a lot of excitement building up to it, a lot of notoriety and all those things. And we were ready to go to Daytona and we got down there and, you know, things went well, you know, we got, uh, you know, through the, through the practice sessions and things, uh, we were working on the cars, trying to make them feel better and, uh, limited amounts of practice. But, you know, it, it felt like good to get back in the car and, um, be relevant with my, my last Daytona. And, you know, it just was a special, special time. And we got through ready to qualify. And I had a problem with, uh, the battery went dead 
Uh, so we couldn't, I couldn't get a chance to qualify. So I had to pull it off the line, which was super disappointing. And, but, you know, we got look, we had to start at the back of the 150 and, you know, got through the 150. It didn't run as well as I wanted to. The car was, uh, was not handling quite as well, but we learned a lot of things from there. We were to make some adjustments and found what we needed. By the time we got through practice, I felt like the car was pretty solid and I felt like I had what I needed to go out and, and run well. So really that's uh, where we started and both, you know, both, uh, you know, Quinn and I, we got ready to run the race and I felt confident and it was just a, a special moment that Alicia and I, you know, had got to be on pit road together and, you know, the final bolting up of the window net and, you know, you're sitting there and, you know, you can just hear your heart pounding and you're excited. And then, you know, um, it got to start the race and it was just, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, I think it was probably the third lap and the right front went down and turn three, I just, the thing just wouldn't turn, drove up and got in the wall and tore the right side up and then come to a halt down the front straightaway. So very disappointing. Couldn't believe that it was over and, you know, just hadn't, be, hadn't really begun. Yeah. All of the lead up, uh, you'd had a lot of press, Boss Klein sponsors and then good friends. They had done um, Drew Gabreski had done a brilliant piece for you leading into it for the sponsor. We had Main and Tail, one of our favorite sponsors on the car. And um, we we were just so excited for you to be there. And for that to happen so early in the race, it was just devastating, beyond devastating. It was heartbreaking. Yeah, you know, I think, again, we talked about the piece we did with, with Drew and Boss Klein that went down to Daytona prior to the event. And, you know, uh, Quinn was down there and I got to relive the last laps of Daytona, walking uh, on the speedway, coming down the front straightaway and reliving those moments and visualizing it, you know, and walking on the racetrack and feeling like you're coming underneath the the start finish line, the checkered flag again. And it was really a, I mean, a, a really moving piece for me to relive it, to do it, you know, at the racetrack and certainly was um, something special. Um, but, you know, again, you know, you, you, all you have, you just making memories, right? And I had a lot of memories from there and um, a lot of wonderful times. And uh, it was special to have be there with you and, and for us to share our last moment there. And although we didn't know what, what was actually happening or we did know what was going on with uh, your mother um, and her health. So it was, it was a difficult time. Even there's a lot of emotion you know, about other things outside of the race that you know, were, you know, in the background. So it really was just a lot going on. And I think you can probably speak to that better than anybody. Well, you do have so much optimism going in. And so you're running on adrenaline that whole time. And then after the wreck, you, you're in shock, you're in disbelief, then you're angry. And, you know, everything that goes through you from, you know, the beginning to the quick end. I, you know, asked the crew chief, we'd been doing an alliance with Rick Ware. So we had his crew chief, um, in the pit box. And I remember looking at him and saying, isn't there anything we can do? And he said, not if he's getting pushed, there's not. And out comes the, the truck. And I just, I just couldn't believe it. 
And so we go back to the coach and my mom had been ill. She'd been ill for um, a long time with cancer. However, we certainly felt like we had another year or two with her. Um, hospice had not been called in. I was going to go visit her after Daytona was over because I had so much marketing with Main and Tail for the double zero leading up to that, um, that I didn't have opportunity to go over there. Plus it was COVID, you know, towards the end of COVID, people were still being very guarded around, you know, cancer patients and, and traveling. So I wanted to make sure that I was in a point where I could quarantine before I went over there. But what happened was just shocking she had just gotten out of the hospital. She'd had a, a week stint where she'd gone in because her blood count was low and they had actually released her from the hospital. The doctor even saying, you know, make plans to go see your mom, make plans to go do the things that you want to do, you know, because you, you might not have a whole lot of time left. Certainly didn't tell us that she only had hours left. And so once she got home, she just really took a turn for the worse. So literally during the time that they were watching the Daytona 500, my mom passed and my brother calls while we're sitting in the coach and he's sobbing and he's saying, I think she's gone. And I said, who's gone? I honestly was so surprised. And she's, and he said, mom, then we got um, my other three brothers, four of us siblings on the phone all together. And we just wept with my dad. And it was just so surreal. I obviously the the wreck of Daytona 500 dimmed in the background to this. And Derek would go back out onto pit road and try to watch the rest of Quinn's race, which like I said, at this point mattered nothing to me. And he came back and I said, what happened? I could see the look on his face. And he said, we wrecked. <laughs> and it wasn't even halfway through the race. And I thought to myself, wow, this is a day for the ages. And it was um, Valentine's Day to boot. So I got on a plane. It took me all night and most of the next day in layovers to get from Daytona Beach to Lewiston, Idaho. And then had to organize a funeral for my mother. So needless to say, that Daytona 500 and that day will live in absolute infamy with me. And I just look back at it as one of the worst days of my life. I couldn't really, I was disappointed, but you know, I, I've missed races. I've you know crashed out. I've done things. And after what had transpired and your mom passing and the grief that I could see you were having, you know, it didn't mean anything at that point. I mean, it was, this was way bigger than anything that we had just happened and just gone through. So I, my, my thoughts and we're all with you and trying to find a way to get you back there as quick as possible. And, and having regret more than anything, I mean, I have not having you out there and not worrying about the Daytona 500 and, you know, and I don't know, like you say, you just, you make decisions and choices and you don't know, you know, you're told things, you only have so much information to base it off of. And, you know, you, you make the best possible choice you can at the time and you have responsibilities, but yet, you know, it just didn't work out like we had hoped it would either way. And, you know, you just, you leave there 
And like we've left there the last five years with Starcom, where we just were devastated, did not have anything to show for it. So much effort and optimism, and then you're just left holding nothing. And, you know, but we still had so much to look forward to. I mean, you know, from a racing standpoint, you, it was a struggle the whole year at that point really became, you know, more of a blur and a struggle for you. I think you were just obviously overwhelmed by what had happened. And, you know, there was a lot going on that you had to continue to do. I mean, so many things beyond just going out there and and being there and, and going through all that. So it was a long, enduring process the whole year. And we still had jobs to do back at Starcom. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was a difficult period of time. Yes, certainly. And just the regret, that the remorse of uh, not being able to see her. But it really was a perfect storm of me being so far away, COVID, not really knowing how how much time she had left. And then what we thought was going to be the pinnacle um, of Starcom Racing, you being able to run the 500 again and having just so much optimism for it. It it really culminated in just such a dismal failure, but we definitely, we rallied back. Like you said, we had a great core of people. We were all working really well. The culture in the shop was really good, very healthy for everyone. We had a lot of great sponsors on board, um, you know, Creek, Boss Klein, Units, Good Creek Movers, lots of great charities, Share, Fair, USFRA with the first responders. And then Quinn had brought on a few Sim Seats and 8-Ball Chocolate Whiskey. And then um, the owners had brought on a few of theirs as well, like Eagle Rock Wealth, some of their partners up there. So the whole year was full of sponsorship. And um, we really felt good about that. We were doing a lot of marketing things that were working. And so, you know, I had a lot to, uh, you know, to be blessed for. But then uh, things would would take a turn towards the end of the summer just because even though we were having great organizational victories, we weren't being productive on the track. Yeah, I think we really, you know, there was things looming in the distance. And obviously with all the owners meetings and all the things that we were going to, next gen was, was on the horizon. So it leads you with uncertainties. And there was a lot of them leading there, you know, both from a from a complete departure from the type of race car that we had, obsoleting everything that we had in the shop at this point in time, basically having to fund the new cars that were very expensive and they were behind. And, you know, so we had a lot of things that I was starting to have to spend a lot of time looking towards. The you know where am I at financially? What am I going to do from revenue streams? You know how am I going to be ready for next gen? And you know from every part and piece, making the books that you know would actually show how to put the car together for all of our people, and basically everything from you know inventories and POs and trying to get all those things ready so that I was like first on the forefront of being ready for a small team, you know, and not being like a, a major Hendrix or, or one of the bigger teams. So I was trying to be as prepared as I could be. And at the same time, we're struggling, you know, Quinn's not hitting on all cylinders. He's struggling with the car. Uh, I don't know. We just, we had kind of regressed a little bit, you know, his driving style had changed. We were just struggling and it just wasn't going well. But what that did was it mired us into the bottom three 
of the points for the charters. So as we had alluded to a while back in some of the episodes about the charter itself, in the bylaws and the provisions uh, that was in the contract of that, there was a provision that said, if you're in the bottom three, three years in a row, your charter could be revoked. It had not happened. It had not been discussed to a great degree, but it still was there looming. But the owners had asked. They were concerned about that because knowing that we would have to put paid drivers into the car, we might not have the the greatest of finishes. Uh, And knowing that we needed the money, you know, as a startup team, I mean, we had nothing started with nothing. So we'd built this team and we needed that, that money. So obviously the performance was going to suffer. The owners knew that. So they had specifically asked NASCAR admin, what would happen if we're in the bottom three? They had, would they you had, take our charter? And, they had discussions. That's and correct. they said no. They said yes. They said no. Because basically it really was that provision that was in there was for primarily to be a deterrent for somebody running more of a start and park charter effort just to make revenue. And they didn't want that, you know. And I think we were we had a quality team aesthetically. I mean, we had the top notch, you know, transporters, you know, the paint schemes that we had on the cars every week. The way that we presented ourselves, we were a class act. In fact, the um, guys in tech would actually thank us for having our wraps always new and having our cars put together, nothing falling off of it. Uh, They said for a small team, you're definitely best in class as to how you show up to the track. Our cars were very nice. We painted, we worked on the things, made sure they had new crush panels. We were very, very proficient. And I think we really, I think we were a small team. We didn't have that many employees and, you know, we were not running up front, but we were a quality team aesthetically. Like you would look at us and the way that we were, I mean, we were as top, we had everything that, you know, the ties on the other side of the the garage would have and we looked really really good we did a lot of hospitality we had a diner we were feeding everybody we we i thought we were you know poised to be you know moving forward and that was our plan our plan was you know like any big like any startup business you are going to have inherent costs and you have you have to create debt to do those things typically and you have to look for a business model that will help you stay solvent and start to pay back debt with, you know, a, a, a five, 10 year plan to where you will be able to be, you know, a solvent entity. Right. And then hopefully you're running in the black and you're making money as a business, like what you're entitled to do. And that was what my business model was. And, you know, the last couple of years we had been profitable. We were in the black and I knew we had to be because we had to, we had to start paying back a charter. We leased a charter. Then we bought the charter. So yeah, we, all, we were hemorrhaging money. We, we, we had basically spent a lot of upstart. Then you got next gen on the horizon. So my job was to really prepare us for the future. And our hopes then would be once we could get through next gen, then we would, we would have a paid driver, hopefully one that was, you know, already had proven himself and could win or put us in a position that we could showcase the potential of Starcom racing in the fashion in which we envisioned it in the beginning. And that's what we were doing at that point. But then, like you said, you know, the late in the summer, we were out, we were in the bottom three and the signs were, 
I didn't feel like that we could probably get ourselves out of the bottom three unless we made some major adjustments. And the adjustments were really unacceptable and the contracts really wouldn't allow those things. And we made the choice to stick it out. But in the meantime, the owners wanted to have a meeting with NASCAR. Well, and it's not that it was worrisome that we were in the bottom three, but it's not that they were terrified because they'd been told, hey, don't worry about that. We're not going to take your charter. That's but not there what was we're rumors. about. But there was rumors that they were going to crack down. And there was rumors of some, you know, influential people, uh, you know, with notoriety and magnitude that were coming in the sport and they were looking for a charter. And there's a lot of other people because you start to hear these things and these rumors, but then, you know, when you're in the bottom three, it's like blood in the water mm -hmm. and you know, there's going to be a sacrificial lamb. There's going to be a scapegoat. There's going to be somebody that they're going to set a precedent with because they want, they can see that there are people out there they want in the sport, whether it was, you know, financial, whether it was notoriety, whether it was ethnicity, uh, ethnicity. Um, there's a lot of different things that lead into those factors, right? So our owners felt compelled to sit down with NASCAR and just to have a conversation and some dialogue on the fact that we were in the bottom three. Where did they see and view this at this point in time leading into next gen? And, you know, what we were up against with next gen because they were so far behind. There was no way that you know, they didn't have the real pricing yet. And we wanted answers. So we had a conversation with a very high level uh, person with NASCAR and the Jersey Boys. And we sat down in the transporter and discussed it. And in no uncertain terms, and we were told that if I were you, I would sell the charter. They basically said that. If, if you are in the bottom three at the end of the year, we will take your charter. We will revoke your charter. It will go up for auction and you will not receive any revenue from the sale. So let's just clarify for the listeners. So we were only in our second year of being in the bottom three. The first couple of years we were not. So we could have, you say, why not? Go for that third year, pull yourself out. And that's exactly what the owners wanted to do. But no, that's not how it works. How it works, folks, is you go ahead and battle that third year. And if you're still in the bottom three, something happens to you, you know, anything, you collect, get collected in wrecks or someone gets sick or you have a driver change, whatever. If you end up in the bottom three that third year, they take your charter, but they give you no money for it. And that's the scary part is that you could spend all the money on a really high-paid, experienced, great driver, all the money on an engine program to pull yourself out, and then what if it doesn't happen? That's as risky as going to the Daytona 500 as an open car. Say at the end of the year, you don't have, you have not pulled yourself out, NASCAR takes that charter, and they do not pay you for it. You get nothing. So you would have been the stupidest of companies um, as a business person to take that chance. Well, the other caveat was the fact that if you did try to do that, you know, create an alliance and put a driver in the car and try to run and race for it, you still have a variable that the next-gen car is there. It's not ready. You have no opportunity to test much with these cars. They did do some tests later in the year, which were, you know, already lined up for that. But the money that you're going to have to spend and outlay and then the inherent problems that were being, you know, talked about. And 
you think about all the money you got to do there, everybody is going to be in the same position, right? And so you're going to have to have an alliance because you need engineering, you need CFD modeling, you need wind tunnel, you need all those things to be able to be proficient with a car like this because everybody's stuff's the same. So it's going to be stacking pennies. And little things are going to be the most important. So you really were in a rock and a hard place. Plus, the undeniable fact is that even if you were in the bottom three in the middle of the year, the person or the group that would buy that, in, that would buy that at that point in time, they would be buying it with the fact that they would have to get it out of the bottom three that year. Otherwise, it's revoked and they would lose their money that they paid for the right. charter to us. Right. It goes by the num the charter, the, the double zero charter, not, or not even the double zero, the charter that you are assigned to, not necessarily Starcom Racing, not any particular race team. You are buying that charter. And so you don't get any mulligans. This franchise would be bought by somebody else if it was in the current year of, of the year that you tried to go get it out of the bottom three. They're buying like, they're assuming all liability and debt right. at that point. Bottom line is, if they couldn't pull it out at that point, then it, it's, it's north of nothing. It right. goes to auction and the highest bidder gets it. So, And that's risky too. So going into the third year would have made, would have devalued your property by so much and made it that much less valued. With so many unknowns, the next-gen car was a major unknown. And I think witness to what has happened this year with the next-gen car, I think you can understand that being on the sidelines probably was a good decision because there has been so many inherent problems with the car. Um, there has been so many revisions with the car. There are so many problems hurting drivers with the car. And it's so expensive. And it's very, very expensive. And the price has escalated since its inception. So honestly, I have to say that I think the three boys you know, and, and ourselves feel like that we made the right decision to, to elect not to move, you know, move forward and to sell it and, you know, basically to recoup the cost. The one thing that was interesting was the fact that what were the price of charters were before. And through this period of time, when we were in the bottom three and there was rumors and things about them revoking charters and there was high level people wanting to purchase charters, they started, they, our owners were being inundated with people coming in with large sums of money to purchase the charter. It was almost like the auction had begun because had begun. every, every bid got higher and higher to the point where the escalation of it went from a charter that you know, you can acquire it for three million just two years ago is now up in twelve, fifteen, upwards of twenty million dollars. Yeah, well, honestly, at that point in time, you know, it had you know, the escalation, you know, there was was apparent because it's um, you know, there's nothing available. And, you know, so now, you know, you you're you're in a marketplace where you have people that want to be in this sport with you know, 2024 looming being a a year for the new uh, television package to be happening. So they are all, I think, hedging their bet that, you know, the way that sports and the TV packages have been escalating for other forms of sports who have already done their new new packages, that it was on the horizon that this was going to help the charter situation. So I think they're, you know, they were willing to pay more money for it. So, and there was only really at that time, one, maybe two available. And the other one ended up, you know, 
this, this one group was trying to get it and it, it went sideways and our owners, I guess, had a lot of, a lot of conversation with multiple people. And I remember them calling us and telling us that they had accepted an offer and that we had to tell the team. And it was a very emotional day. It was very emotional for you. And I think the crew was very surprised. I usually ran the staff meetings every Tuesday. And I just was kind of like business as usual. This is what's coming down, guys. And I'm really sorry. But you got very emotional. And I think the crew was very surprised at that. They'd never seen you that way. And it really hit you as you were explaining it or as I was explaining it. I think it finally became real that we are closing down. We are shutting our doors. We are no longer a cup race team. And this might be the last time, you know, you do manage a race team. I, I think for me, as I was discussing it and telling them guys, you know, I, I guess I had, uh, I don't know, I was so sad for all of these guys. You finally had the right mix of people. The culture had changed. Everybody was vested. And the next gen was coming. You know, you had the thoughts that you would have the same thing that everybody else did. And we could be prepared. I'd be, if I was ahead of time, I had money in the bank to buy the cars. I mean, we were. We had been profitable, we had which been very profitable. few teams could say that. And I mean, honestly, we were ready for next gen. We were ready to get ready. We we're going to have our cars there. We were one of the first guys to put purchase orders in. And I just prided myself on that, you know, we were going to come out of this thing and we were going to do the best we could do. We had money set aside to do some, you know, alliance things. And I just felt like we were on the cusp of turning things around. And then all of a sudden, you know, this is over. And it was our, like you built the mansion, but then someone else is going to move in. Yeah. And you're out. You know, and, and then you're, you think, then you start thinking at the same time you're talking all these all these things are flooding your emotions and in your head, you know, the fact that, and this could be it for you and I, and this could be, I've been in NASCAR for a very long time. I'm over 40 years and the highest level. And, you know, I started in cup. I never went to Bush or Xfinity and nationwide, whatever it well, was. For short stints of time. For short stints of time. Because you needed to. And, you know, really this could ultimately be the last, you know, opportunity to be in, in NASCAR at this level. And it was, yeah, it was overwhelming and uh, very emotional. And, and I knew that, you know, we were going to have to close these doors that we had built everything. I mean, we upfitted the building, we'd done everything. And well, and, and you, you really wanted to import to the crew members that this was not our choice. And we wanted everyone to know, want the listeners to know as well, Starcom did not want to sell out. They wanted to keep racing. They, they wanted to be stable. And we wanted to continue. And at first we wanted to fight, but then realized that that would be a very stupid mistake. And ultimately they made the right decision business-wise, but it was very defeating to stand in front of the crew and, and our fellow uh, teams and people that we know, officials, um, sponsors, everyone that we have built relationships and family ties with in NASCAR, you know, we didn't want them to think that we had sold out. Don't want anyone to think that, oh, well, they, you know, just wanted the money. They came in and got the money and got out. That was not it at all. If NASCAR had helped us even the tiniest little bit, 
we would have stayed? I think for me, I've, for the first time, I've given my life to NASCAR and, and this deal. I never thought that I would ever, you know, get out. I thought that it would just be a lifelong commitment for me in some way, shape or form beyond driving. But, and when you, you know, you basically realize and you think for sure that, you know, you're probably going to be a scapegoat and you're going to be the one that they set the precedent with. It's, it's just, um, you can't even believe the magnitude of what that does to you. And you feel like that at that point, I'd be doing a disservice to our friends, you know, Mike, Matt and Bill that if I don't give them my honest opinion, that's the one thing that I've always prided myself on is that I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to misrepresent the situation. And I'm going to tell you what I truthfully think that we need to do in your best interest. And I said, for me, I've always told them, take the emotion out of it. I'm just going to tell you what we have to do and have realistic expectations. And I said, I cannot sit here and tell you that this is not the right decision. As much as I wanted to keep racing, as much as I wanted to move forward, I honestly felt like that we didn't have any recourse at that point in time. And I felt like that for their families, they're all young guys. They all have families. They all have young children. This was a way for them to get, you know, put the money back into the fiber that they had taken out and that, you know, it would reimburse them. And it was something that I felt like was a good decision for their livelihoods. And there are friends. And honestly, um, you know, I, I felt like I made the right decision and you made the right decision and, and collectively saying, you know, we agree with you and, you know, we're here for you. We'll do whatever you have to do to, to facilitate this. And that's exactly what we did. Right. And we knew too that the cards were stacked against us. We were not going to get any help from NASCAR. In fact, if anything, they wanted us out. They wanted to make way for the famous people. They wanted diversity. They wanted those people that had money, wealth, and notoriety to have a charter. And it became very clear that out with the old and in with the new was their motto. And we were not going to get any second chances. You know, over the years, I've seen a lot of, you know, people come into the sport and be owners or be you know, part owners. I mean, back to the days of Dan Marino and the days of Dan Pastorini and Terry Bradshaw. And, you know, you had Troy Aikman and, and Roger Staubach. You, you had countless people that were involved, right? And then you still have Brad Doherty with JTG Doherty. You know, there's a lot of influential people, very high profile athletes that were coming in. But when you bring in a magnitude of a Michael Jordan, you're talking about next level and you're talking about somebody that demands a lot of respect and notoriety. And, you know, I mean, I think where the sport is at, where the world's at, it was something that, you know, NASCAR felt and compelled that it was needed and they wanted it and they wanted another team. And, you know, a one-car effort is not as good as a two-car effort, three-car effort, or four-car effort. And that's what their intent was. And I think that we were there for the taking. And, they felt like it was the best thing for NASCAR at that point in time. And so, you know, they set the the bar to the point where we had to, uh, you know, how low can you go? And, it, you know, it was going to break our back. So it was unfortunate, but, you know, that's what happened. And, you know, I, I talked to the guys and I said, you know, here's my thoughts. And we are going down, but 
we do have next gen cars here. We have pieces here. They had already showed up pieces were going together. And my, my thoughts were, look, let's put this race car together. Let's put a driver in the car of our choice and go to the test at Charlotte in October. And let's prove that we can, we can go and perform with the best of them. Well, just in case you did want to be an open car the following year. Exactly. And there was talks of that. And I thought for the guys that when you work on this car, when you go look for another job, you will have already put one together. You'll know the intricacies about it. You'll know the good, you know, the bad and the ugly. And you'll know what, you know, what problems there are with the quality control issues. You'll know all those things and you'll be worth more money and you can fall right into a job somewhere on the cup level. And I think it's good. It's good for you. It just wasn't perceived that way. I think at that point, everybody was so overwhelmed. We had some older guys that had been in cup for a very long time that had been, you know, with me as, you know, on my team, the crew chiefs, and they felt like they were close to retirement, yet they didn't want to go out this way and they wanted to be here and they put their heart and soul into it. And they just weren't enthused about that. But Chris Stanley, the engineer and Dave Jones and myself, we, you know, we pretty much stayed at night and did the majority of the work. And, you know, then the guys in the fab shop built things for it and all that. But, you know, it's actually putting the car together and, and, you know, every night or every morning they come in and see that we'd had something else on the car. And, and then when it got closer and the car was coming together, then the interest level rose and everybody got excited about it. And then they all started pitching in and doing things. And the it camaraderie, was, it all came together at the end. It and was comical it was, how yeah. Chris Stanley, he was pretty much the lone wolf. He wanted to build that next-gen car. He was fascinated with everything about it. And he pretty much took that on his solo effort there. And then Dave you know, came in just to help out. And then Georgie would help out a little bit. And so it really was kind of a, a sole effort at first. And then he started drawing people in. You could tell the crew members would, it was kind of like the mushroom that grew in the night. And the next morning, everyone kind of gather around and say, oh, this thing's coming together. Well, what's that? What's, and it was fascinating. There were some pieces and parts of it that you were like, wow, that is very different. And I remember thinking to myself, this car is so stiff. This car is so, it's the pieces that are bolted on and the way the clips come on and off like Legos. It, it was uh, fascinating the way it came together, but the inner workings of it uh, were very complicated. So it was good that you had a mathematician like Chris Crunch and all the numbers all the time. It was a complete departure from what we have been racing for a long time. And Chris, you know, being an engineer, we really never really utilized his services as much as we could have or should have. But he, we had a Romer, a Ferro arm, and he went in there and started hanging the body himself. Every morning, the car got closer and closer, and then the interest level rose. And we got the car together. And we hired Kaz Grala, who had, you know, uh, had been relatively, you know, proficient at road racing and had done a lot of things, you know, uh, on the lower levels and went to Charlotte. And I remember rolling that car out the night before and then put it in the hauler and did a video and every excitement level. We get out there and the car unloads. And I think we're fourth fastest off the truck, fifth fastest in the, in the morning session there. And we got no problems, zero problems. And everybody else has rack and steering problems. They can't drive the cars. We got engineers from Hendrix and, you know, other teams coming over and asking us what rack we got in the car. And so it was just rewarding that we, a small group of people had put this car together, really come out there people had put it together <laughs> and went out there and here, you know, and Kaz Grawl is doing a wonderful job driving his tail off. And we are, you know, 
we're we're a quality effort and we are making inroads. I didn't bring enough tires, didn't spend enough money on tires. Otherwise, we could have, you know, probably kept putting tires on, making more changes and giving him the feel he needed on stickers. And we probably would have been, but I think we're still in the top 14 or 15 overall. And that proved a lot to me that we were, you know, capable with all the right people and the right, you know, the right, you know, mix of a driver and all the things that we were relevant. We were relevant. And I think it, it kind of left, uh, you know, like our departing gift, right. Was that test session. Well, and especially for the crew, I, I think that the crew had kind of been demoralized there at the end, um, thinking that they hadn't built quality cars. And I think they really had a sense of accomplishment knowing that they put something completely foreign together and took it to Charlotte and were able to see it run with the pack and in in front of the pack. I mean, we were faster than, you know, I mean, <laughs> all the Gibbs cars and, you know, Toyotas. And I mean, we were, I mean, we were faster than a lot of great cars. And I mean, when you're on load fourth or fifth fast and you stay there for the majority of the day or whatever, and then, you know, you're top 10, you know, you're doing a quality job and, and I think it's credible effort. And that's, that's what happened. And so, you know, it would, it would have been nice to have had the opportunity to have had, you know, got to go on and do more of it. Um, but you know, it wasn't to be, and, you know, we went to the last race that, uh, you know, well, I had to pretty much prepare everything, right. Cause they, you know, things were coming to a close and it just so happened that it was on my birthday. And that was the day that I physically had everybody's toolboxes out of there. That was the deadline for all of that. And I physically closed and locked the doors. And we were ready to head to Phoenix for the last race. So it was a sad, sad time. And, you know, we get to Phoenix and, you know, you're just there for the last time and you know, it is. And, um, you know, the flight out, you know, you're, you're, you know, enjoying the flight out yet. You're not, and you're just trying to relish every moment of this last opportunity. And you're trying to take it all in and take in the last race and the atmosphere. And, you know, and that's, and then when it's over, you're leaving and you're driving away and you're thinking that this might be the last time that I ever come to Phoenix International Raceway. And, you know, I'd been going there since the early 80s, you know, and leaving Riverside and going over to Phoenix, you know, and working in the Palm Springs parking lot. So a lot of memories flooded me as I was leaving Phoenix and, you know, wondering if it would be the last time that I ever got to go there. So, yeah, that was it. And pretty much that was the end. You know, we would wait for the hauler to come back and unload the cars and lock it up. Yep, I remember when we locked the doors, it was almost like the end of a of an episode of uh Cheers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it was it was a it was a sad time, really. And you didn't you know, we I I didn't know what to do with myself. I mean, I'd gone I was the first guy to get there and the last guy to leave, and I locked the doors. I had everybody leave and I locked the doors and you know, and I didn't have any place to go to. And it was, yeah, it was, it was a rough time. And it was a lot of uh, soul searching and sitting at home trying to figure out, you know, what, what is next for you and I, and, and that's where, that's where we were at. So, you know, at that, that's about really where it ended. And, you know, now it would be on to the next chapter of our lives and, you know, will it be in racing? Will it be something else? And, I think, uh, obviously, you know, it was interesting from there. 
Yes, and we'd like to thank everyone for their comments um, that they're giving me at Health Coach Cope and at Derek Cope Double Zero. And some of you have asked for maybe a little bit more details on some of the cars and seasons that Derek drove, like the Poison Car, Ozzy Osbourne, um, the uh, Quest year. So we'll definitely be now that we've come to the end of our Starcom days, we'll be going over some of those requests that you've had. But I wanted to um, highlight one comment that I felt was very, very nice and so well-written by Brandon Stargell, who's been a longtime fan of Derek. And he said he just started um, listening to the podcast. And he writes, I used to buy the old NASCAR preview and press guides and read them cover to cover, memorizing statistics and the like. That's where most of what I know as a fan came from in the early days. But stats only paint half the picture. I never knew what was going on behind the scenes with funding and the like. The one thing I did know was that Derek could wheel a race car. I started following racing as an 11-year-old kid in 1997, and my memories are a little fuzzy, but I definitely remember becoming a fan of Derek's in 1998. My dad used to collect racing cards, and he would tell me about DC being a formal baseball player. I don't remember when I first saw the 1990 Daytona 500 on TV, but I knew from the old preview and press guides that Derek had wins at Daytona and Dover. I'm going to stop now or I could go on forever, but I want to thank you for the podcast. It's a fan's dream and I really enjoy it. I still have memorabilia I've collected over the years and I patronize all the sponsors you represented, especially DCR Team 70. I carry a Trayvax wallet and belt. I use Charlie's soap. I loved e-hydrate and mane and tail and so did my family. I haven't been able to find it in a couple years. I say it was in my cooler. I have a Sway watch and I ordered coffee from Jackson Coffee Company. I even sent emails to Adrenaline Power Sports and Way Tractor thanking them. I just always appreciated the way you represented your sponsors, and I felt like it was my duty as a fan to let them know their commitment to you was paying dividends. Keep up the great work on the podcast, and could you please talk about 2002 when you partnered with Sound Moves and drove the Poison Car, and what exactly happened to the OzFest car at Charlotte? So Brandon, we'll be discussing some of that, and thank you so much. It's fans like you that the sport needs more of, those that are loyal to your driver and loyal to the sponsors that he represents. Brandon, those are kind words, and we truly value them, and very and we're very appreciative uh, of you, you know, saying those things to us. So, we are going to in the next episode, we'll try to uh, reach out and, and answer some of your questions, you know, on Quest and Ozfest and Poison. A lot of fun things happened back then, and we're going to discuss those, and we'll go those in depth, and then we'll go on from there. So, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope double zero and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.